Well, if we're going to start with garden wasps, then Darwin <laughs> kicked this off quite neatly with... What he said, I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent god would have designedly created the... Okay, I'm going to get this wrong. Ichnum... Oh, fuck it, I've ruined it already. <laughs> Ichnumonidae. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Right, yep. Ichnumonidae. With the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. Yeah, so... I don't know. I, I found it kind of... Um... It's a reflection on wasps, isn't it? You know, Darwin was into beetles originally, so I think he had it out, had it in for wasps from the beginning. It's uh, beetle obsessive in his early days, but clearly, I mean, wasps were yeah, that idea was a compelling example of how life is not not very fair and it's brutal, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, being eaten alive by a wasp in your insides is, is a kind of way to go. And then I like the fact that Darwin, you know, came up with these amazing theories of evolution. You know, he, he worked it out. He worked it all out. And he worked on these lovely, you know, lovely finches, Galapagos, you know, tortoises, and collected all these beetles which showed in the diversity of life. And then, oh yeah, wasps, they show you there's no God. <laughs> yes, as we head into what is set to be a particularly hot August, full of picnics aplenty and paddling pools filled despite potential hosepipe bans, this month we explore the creature that got under Darwin's skin and proved, at least to him, that God does not exist. Wasps, parasitoid wasps, or to be more precise, the superfamily of insects known as the Ichnomonidae, these creatures account for 10% of all of British insects. That's over 7,000 distinctly unique wasps, and yet you're probably only aware of the five, that's just five species, that try to get into your fizzy drinks. Now, a lot of you may hate wasps, stingy childhood trauma, etc., but for you especially, I implore you to stick with us, because what you're about to hear proves that we would be nowhere without are many winged wonders. For this month's episode of Trees A Crowd, I, David Oakes, went to one of my favourite buildings, the Natural History Museum in London. I went to speak to Principal Curator in Charge of Insects and the Head of the Museum's Art and Science Interest Group to broaden my wasp horizons, and to discuss everything from Damien Hirst to David Attenborough, and all the hobbyist Victorian clergymen that inspired them. Yes, this is Treza Crowd, and this is Wasp Expert, Dr. Gavin Broad. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, So I'm Gavin Broad, and I'm in—I'm a wasp taxonomist, essentially. But I'm also in charge of the insect collections at the Natural History Museum, which is quite a nice job. It's a collection of about 27 million insects. And you're in charge of all of them. Yeah, with <laughs> with my team and my team of curators who actually, you know, are doing all the actual work of looking after them. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found quite incredible is there's a video of you online, going through the drawers, just sort of making sure that you've sort of actually looked at all these things that haven't been looked at some for a couple of hundred years. I mean, it baffles me that a museum has so many specimens that it just doesn't know what they are, where they are, who got them and all this stuff. I mean, that's that's bonkers, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those weird and wonderful things about museum. I think we're always pressured because we, we collect a lot of specimens, we acquire a lot of specimens through other collections and it's there's always a pressure to, to work on them, but then you sort of 
you sort of forget sometimes that we've still got another 200 years worth of material we haven't finished with yet and it's it's in essence we're uh, creating a resource for the future generations as well as what we're doing at the moment who collected these wasps who was particularly keen and, and insects in general like I mean, I can understand people going out and collecting sort of bigger specimens. Why? What? What? What was it? What is it about insects that made people go out and collect them? Yeah, people. I don't know. Uh, no, <laughs> no idea. No. Why would anybody work on these things? They're very frustrating. They're very small. You have to look down a microscope a lot of the time. But the, is that the is that the charm that they are so small and that there are so many of them? I think that is a huge charm for insects. Um, they're really amenable group in that way to just discovery. You know, you you go out. So a classic way you might go and uh, collect a load of insects is to wander through a meadow, sweeping a net around. Mm-hmm. And you just look at the contents and realise what an amazing diversity of stuff you've just collected. You know, a lot of these little wasps that I'm interested in, um, they're really unobtrusive things. You don't know they're there. And sure. then and you go and just collect a little bit and suddenly discover there's hundreds, thousands of species. Um, and it's an amazing sort of glimpse into this world that you you don't see at the surface. You sort of delve a little bit and there, there it is. I mean, I was just before I walked down to the Natural History Museum, I was sitting up in the park and thought, I'll just see what, what insects I can see, because I'd read the chapter in your book about how best to catch them and see where they are and whatever. I saw one wasp. I just saw one yellow jacket. That was it. Oh. And I was like, but I've just been reading this book and it says there's loads of them. It says that 10% of all British insects are these, the ichneumonids. I can't say it. Yeah, just one family of parastoid wasps, ichneumonids, uh, 10% that's, of British insects. That's 7,000 British wasps or so. Yeah, in total. So where are they? That's a good question. Um, so sometimes if you go to somewhere like um, lovely sort of umbella for flowers, uh-huh. they can be swarming with wasps sometimes, um, particularly a little bit later in the year than this, because they're attracted to nectar. They need. You can see all this wonderful variety of ichneumonids. But generally, it's, it's a, a bit harder. Where you may see them sort of dashing around in front of bushes. Sure. But if you sort of put up a passive collecting equipment like a, a malaise trap or a yellow pan trap or something, you suddenly you catch them because they're really at low density. Sure. Uh, they're buzzing around, but you just don't tend to notice them and they just blunder into something and then you then you get them. Uh, so they're a bit, yeah, it's not quite like, um, I think, you know, certain flies, you just see them all the time. All we've, the time. We've got one buzzing around the office now. Yep, that's uh, great. It's supporting well. Yeah, I mean, they're just at higher abundance, I think. These humans because they're after their prey they're always going to be less common sure uh, it's worth saying that most of these wasps aren't those ones that sting us and come for our picnics there's about five species i guess that we would know from yeah. the can of coke that your kids left unattended and then had a swig out and swallowed a wasp that kind of thing absolutely yeah yeah it's very much the minority yeah um, i mean all the rest have a sting uh, almost all of them have a sting but they don't particularly use it to sting you or me <laughs> particularly me okay here's, here's a question so the word that I can't say ichneumonids the Japanese call it himabati yeah. which is the princess wasp and the German call it the schlupfespen which is the slippery wasp why haven't the scientific community in general come up with a better name than ichneumonid and if you're the head of insects and in particular the ichneumonids here at the Natural History Museum why haven't you come up with a better name? Um, well, thank for, I preempted that question uh, by the fact that I was at a meeting just before lockdown, uh, or not long before lockdown, I suppose, in, in Switzerland. And we decided we are going to give them a common name in English. And it's going to be Darwin wasps. Oh, great. 
which is, is course, it's quite neat that you started off with Darwin. Uh, it means I can't edit that bit out now where I got the first <laughs> way of saying ignominity. Yeah. I can't do it. The Darwin wasps. Yeah, yeah. Darwin wasps. So it's a nice handy vernacular now. Um, some people in my community hate that name, actually, because it's like presum very presumptuous, isn't it? We're going to claim Darwin wasps for my family. I think it's great. I think for, for Darwin Darwin to have slandered them back in the day, to, for him to then become the, the name of them. And also taxonomy and nomenclature. Oh, I can't speak today. Taxonomy and nomenclature. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> taxonomy and nomenclature is always renaming itself anyway. So that's yeah. not that's not a massive problem if after you're gone, everyone goes, let's get rid of that Darwin thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, it wasn't my idea, that particular name. I just voted on it. But okay. um then my colleague Mark in Edinburgh came up with that. It's good, good idea. I, I like think. it. Yeah, but good to give somebody to hand. You know, yeah, exactly. Who can pronounce it, Newman's, if for the first time I can't. Read it. But then I can't pronounce nomenclature either. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's let's talk a bit more about you before we go back to wasps and why they're so interesting. Where did you grow up? Were you a nature freak? And where do the wasps come into all of this? Good questions. Where did I grow up? Mostly on the Wirral near Liverpool. So quite a bit, almost an idyllic little sort of peninsula sticking out between Wales and Liverpool. Mm -hmm. um, so I was obsessed, uh, not, yeah, I was a nature freak, definitely, but probably more birds initially. Uh, still birds, still obsessed with birds. It, it does seem to be a common thing. A lot of people I talk to, it does start with birds. And I guess it's because you can, I guess, sit there in a pram and just look up and see them all. They're always there. Absolutely. Yeah. They're the, I was thinking about that. How do you get into mammals if you're in Britain? How do yeah. they attract you? You don't see them much. Uh, we saw a hedgehog the other day. We've got a little camera out, but we saw it out during the day. Um, and we took the little one out and played on the... Well, didn't, didn't pick up the hedgehog and play with it, <laughs> but took her out to see it as it waddled off. But she's, she spots birds at 15 months. We were out and she saw a couple of buzzards yeah. up in the sky and she saw them before we did. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. And she didn't say buzzard, but I knew she was trying to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, absolutely. They're there. They catch anywhere you go, pretty much, there's birds. So, yeah, they, they caught me. But I think the thing about, the other thing about birds is, especially if you're going to the same site all the time as I was, there's a lull in the summer when, you know, they're, they're rearing young or whatever, they're less, they're less conspicuous and you start casting off something else to look at. I ended up looking at moths. Uh, somebody uh, showed me a moth trap and I got into that. So moth trapping and then... Who was the somebody and where were you? Actually, so the, the somebody was a guy called uh, John Rains. Uh, again, up in the world, he's a he was an obsessive birder, and then got obsessive, he was obsessively into moths. One of those sort of mm -hmm. amazingly obsessive types. Uh, <laughs> so I'd go around to his house when I was like a teenager. There's a bunch of us would go off birding, and then but we'd go around to John Rains's first, see the moth hall. So then I started light trapping on a small island that I was visiting a lot. It's always handy to have a small island that you can visit. <laughs> um, and again, yeah, somebody bought a light trap from there. At the the ranger so that was great and I was in and Liverpool Museum were fantastically helpful um, in helping to name what you'd found or yeah so when I was you know struggling on some little micro moths or whatever there was, sure. they'd help me out how old are you now? me now as, as in then in the story how old am I then in the story um, by that point I, I think I must have been an undergraduate so okay. I'd gone off to uni uh, I'd started on moths when I was 15 I think sure so yeah I must have been going in before then to get them checked yeah, but then they started giving me, you know, equipment like pins and boxes and stuff like that, which is fantastic. And I'd look at their wasp collection, and that's so I got into the wasps, as we also, I'm sure we'll get into. You know, the, a lot of these little ichneumonid wasps attack caterpillars. Mm -hmm. So if you're really into moths, then you know, if you go the right way, you should then get into parasitoid wasps. 
<laughs> when you talk about pinning and collecting and I thought we weren't supposed to collect and pin things anymore. Like, is it okay if you're a scientist and you're doing it for the greater good or like... So I think it's one of those issues where it's, it's clearly an emotive issue. I There's a lot of things that you just can't do from observing things in the wild. Sure. And certainly, certainly back when I was... It's just as true now as when I was like, you know, a, a teenager. Well, back then, certainly photographs were almost non-existent and sure. nobody was identifying these things live, all these little like, human wasps. Nowadays, people make more progress with photos of specimens with their amazing macro lenses and things, but it's still really difficult. Um, and to be honest, people are only making, only being able to identify those with the help of people who've been studying pinned collections, you know, collections of things pinned. That's the only way to get to grips with the real species diversity when you've got thousands and thousands of species. It's studying really tiny differences down a microscope. I mean, that's the one thing I got from your book is that if you couldn't look at the minute anatomical parts of them, then you wouldn't really have a clue what was what. I mean, they're all quite incredible and the variety is so vast that if one's just flying past you, you'd never really notice. No, 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 it's really difficult. Um, you know, sometimes I'm, with a bit of practice, you get quite good at recognising them just by the just by their overall habitus or, you know, jeers as the birds would call it. So... If you were trying to convince someone to like wasps, which I imagine is something you probably have to do quite often, yeah. what would be the three most important things you would say? I suppose I'd say if you're not going to like them, at least admire them, uh, respect them. So the thing about wasps, uh, they are incredibly, if you, if you want to take it down to utilitarian sort of argument, they're incredibly useful. They're out there eating huge numbers of other insects. Really, they probably play a huge role in, in regulating populations of uh, you know, defoliating insects of aphids and all these sorts of things. Really, really useful things. Um, second, uh, they're just beautiful, uh, <laughs> beautiful insects, I think. Everyone thinks that, whatever they work on. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, yeah, especially yeah. when a wasp has how many eyes on average? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got the nice little five eyes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're really, I, I think they're really attractive things. They, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colours. There's a lot to... A lot to get interested in there. There's, there's, and I suppose the third thing, you know, if you if you want to keep busy for the rest of your life, then it's a really good group to choose because you're not going to get bored, not when there's a few thousand to get get your teeth into. So taking your first point, uh, you mentioned how wasps help control crop decimation by other pests. We as human beings have been using that to our betterment. We've been manipulating the natural order of things. Am I right in saying that? most ichneumonid slash Darwin wasps prey upon one particular kind of prey animal. And so they can be quite specifically introduced to somewhere where there is a problem with pests of a different kind, or is it a bit more hit and miss that you just need some wasp to go somewhere to eat some things? Um, yeah, somewhere in between. So, so cause probably the minority of ichneumonid wasps are actually going to be attacking, well, very much the minority are going to be attacking one species of host. They tend to go for you know, as a gross generalisation, they tend to be going for a bunch of vaguely related species feeding in the same sorts of habitat. So you might get a lovely little um, ichneumon, Darwin wasp-like agripon, which um, very pretty little things, yellow, black and red, and they fly around uh, leaves of trees and they'll attack a variety of caterpillars that feed in more or less exposed. Sure. Um, that's the sort of niche that they like. Uh, you get another bunch of wasps that might go for leaf rollers, but then you get you get the habitat you get the absolute specialists you get something like uh, stillbops 
betulus, which attacks uh, just one species of longhorn moth. And it's really it just sniffs out the eggs of one. It's one host, lays its own egg in that egg, and then delays its the larva develop delays its development until the host is ready to pupate. Um, it's really specialised. Do they always prey on caterpillars and eggs? Do they ever sort of pick on some of their own size? <laughs> There's a lot of wasps attack other wasps. Okay. It's quite a common strategy. I was reading um, about some butterflies that were introduced to Finland, and it turned out that there were some wasp larvae injected into the butterfly caterpillars and so the wasps hatched but then within those wasps there were other wasps yep yeah that's a common strategy um <laughs> the russian doll wasp yeah effect. yeah yeah absolutely you get these little mesochorus which are attacking the the uh, original wasp larvae inside the host and they can go for these these wasps hosts when they're really quite tiny so i don't know how they find them in the body of the host yeah, so, so there's two stories here. There's the fact that a lot of these wasps are parasitic, parasite, parasoidal. Parasitoid. Parasitoid, that'll do. Yeah. So they lay their eggs inside that of a, of a larvae or a caterpillar or an egg or whatever. Yeah. And there are instances of, of sometimes them manipulating the host to do things to help the pres. You can say this better than I can. <laughs> Tell me some interesting yeah. stories about parasitic, parasitoid moss. <laughs> um, wasps. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Parasitoid wasps, there's... Yeah, I mean, basically anything you can think of, uh, they, they do, I, I think. You know, so all sorts of things act, all sorts of other organisms act as hosts. Say all sorts of other organisms, insects, spiders, essentially. They don't tend to range out of those two groups. Sure. But um, yeah, so like one of the big families of parasitoids, the Braconidae, uh, the Braconids are, you know, not quite a species rich as the Ichneumonids, but they're a massive group. And there's this lovely wasp that you can get in your garden attacking sort of you know cabbage white butterflies particularly mm -hmm. large white i've reared them on my cabbages and towards the end of the season you, you can load loads of these can be parasitized like you're maybe 70 percent of the caterpillars so the wasp comes along lays an egg uh, well lays a whole bunch of eggs inside the caterpillar they then burst out when they finished feeding and spin these fluffy yellow cocoons but the caterpillar will um stay near the cocoons in fact it will sit over the cocoons and guard them Somehow. So it's still alive, even though it's been eaten from the inside yeah. out. Yeah. So and the, then works as a guard to keep people away from the cocoons of the wasps. Absolutely. Uh, so, th yeah, basically, hormonally, they're somehow brainwashing their host to protect the cocoons. Because these y little fluffy yellow cocoons are actually quite vulnerable. So so the caterpillar sits there. And you, my friend uh, James actually sent me this lovely little video of him poking his caterpillar with a pencil and rearing up. And it's you know, puts a bit of effort into protecting uh, these it's not doing it, I mean, I'm not going to say consciously because that would suggest that they had a conscience of self-aware. Yeah. Is it just a reflex? Is it created by a hormone released by the wasp? What's going on there? Does it think that the cocoons are its eggs, which they couldn't be because it's a caterpillar, yeah. like they don't lay eggs? Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure what's going on. It's something to do with hormones. There's a bit of work going on in this particular wasp to work out what's going on with the hormones because... Earlier on, they also make the, the caterpillar basically sort of become rather inactive and slow when the wasps are about to emerge from it. So they're changing the behavior at different stages as well and in different ways. There's a paper on this which termed this a cytokine storm. They're basically really disrupting the nervous system and the, the hormonal system of this caterpillar. So it's totally like swept away by events. It's really, yeah, I wish I was more of a biochemist uh, and sure. I could, I'll have to find out what's going on. But yeah, it's really interesting. Is it a new field of research? Like in general, if people just left wasps alone, 
Are you like um, at the, the, the cutting edge of your particular branch of... You know, I don't think I'm at the cutting edge of anywhere these days. Uh, <laughs> I'm, although I do have a student who's going to be doing some genomics research, which is really cool. Uh, it is a really neglected area. I think traditionally there has been some amazing work going on in wasps for years because they do some really interesting things. Sure. Uh, obviously, they attack hosts. They can manipulate their sex ratios really easily. Um, How do they do that? A little trick with... Uh, with wasp, with the whole order Hymenoptera is that they're haplodiploid so males only have one set of chromosomes females two which means if they fertilise an egg it becomes a female if they don't it becomes a male so essentially they choose whether an egg is, which sex an egg is going to be How do they choose though? How do they know what the population is doing at that time to make a balance out as half and half? Yeah that's that's the really interesting question that's what's sort of yeah that's that really interested sort of um, behavioural ecologists population ecologists what are the cues that the wasp is using? And sometimes there's some really cool examples where a wasp will lay a brood on a little fly pupa inside a fly pupa. And with the, well, I say knowledge, you know, with the, it's evolved to sort of know and, or to respond to the fact that the other hosts, other potential wasps may be miles away uh-huh. relative to the tiny size of these wasps. So they may have to end up mating with their own siblings. So in that case, why bother investing in males? You just need one male to do the job. So often they'll have a brood of females with one male who's just there to mate with his sisters. Those sorts of... Bit creepy, but quite amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not doing a good job for wasps here, am I? You no, know? I think you're doing an amazing job. I'm far just more the... invested than I was before, and not just because of the incest. <laughs> yeah. Just that, yeah, we've just yeah, we've recovered quite a few disgusting uh, habits of theirs. But anyway... I was leading on to asking, like, how how does the other, the smaller wasp get into the bigger wasp? So to go take that Russian doll bit, there's lots of sort of stories here that every single time I ask you something and then we go off on an amazing rabbit <laughs> yeah, hole. Sorry about that. No, no, it's wonderful. So a wasp has laid its larvae inside a host. Yeah. And then another wasp comes along and uses, which is my favourite word of the day, the ovipositor, positor, ovipositor, yeah. to lay its larvae inside the wasp that's inside the caterpillar slash egg slash whatever. Yeah, exactly. So what they do for this is, if you look at them under the under a strong microscope, they've got the original wasp. Say you've got a little thing like a hypersota who's laying uh, an egg inside one of these fertility butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got, you know, fairly na- narrow ovipositor, but it's, you know, it's not like a needle. It's 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 got a little notch. It's quite a complex thing. They like it is a barb or yeah. It's it's almost like the notch creates a barb. So you, they stick the ovipositor in. And this sort of notch basically connect means that the skin of the host caterpillar sort of fits in there. So while they're injecting the venom, the caterpillar wiggles a bit, but it can't escape. Then it's subdued by the venom temporarily. It injects an egg. Just one or many? Uh, in that particular case, it's one. Okay. Yeah. So then they'll fly away. Caterpillar re- resumes. Then the mesochorus comes along, which is the hyperparasitoid. And that is, it's got a totally different ovipositor structure. It's really thin, like a needle. And okay. it basically just shoves it in doesn't is that uh, because it needs to get through two layers of insect before it can lay its egg I think it's because it's it's. I presume it's got to be very precise it's going into a very small host within another body I don't know whether they can manipulate them inside because some ovipositors can be bent in various directions uh-huh. um, but essentially it's anything that's laying into something really small tends to have a needle like ovipositor because you don't want to disrupt sure. the tissues too much are so. there any other animals that have an ovipositor the only thing yeah. I can think of is the alien face hugger. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, lots do, but they're not as conspicuous. So you can sometimes see conspicuous ovipositors on, like, crickets. 
grasshoppers, you know, beetles sometimes, you know, they can have an extendable ovipositor for, at the end of the abdomen, same with flies. Sure. But it's, Hymenoptera, I mean, it's the key to their success, really, this sting and ovipositor. But it's it's like a hang it's like a hangover from quite primitive insect days. Mm-hmm. So the primitive so the ancestor of the insects would have had all these appendages in each body segment, and they all got reduced away. So you basically got some legs and mouth parts, but the end appendages got modified into an ovipositor. And insects still have the hymenoptera. The wasps still have those as discrete, hard bits of the body, sure. which are fused together to make this ovipositor. Yeah. So whereas that's been internalized in like flies and beetles sure. would a human penis be an ovipositor <laughs> like where does the like should we start calling ourselves ovipositoids no you're not I hope you're not laying any eggs through <laughs> well, your no penis. but like, half an egg <laughs> sort of yeah yeah no i mean does it, does it have to be the entire egg to be therefore an ovipositor it has to be a fully fertilized or arguably not fertilized because if it's not fertilized it can still become a wasp yeah does it have to be a fully soon to be living breathing egg in order to be posted through the other positive yes okay yeah right. basically yeah it does. although having said that sometimes it just acts as a sting and the egg just pops out the base uh, at the end of the uh, egg canal so is the stinger and the other positive two separate things they're the same thing it's okay. just the other positive is like um initially it was like a dual purpose um, sure, sure. so it, it stings and it lays an egg so the egg gets squeezed along this uh, and then in things like you, your your friendly stinging wasps and your bees, uh, they don't s- squeeze an egg along it anymore. It's just a sting. Amazing. So the second thing he said that would convince people that wasps were wonderful was that they were beautiful. Which brings me sort of neatly onto one of the other things that you do here. You run the arts and science uh, interest group at the Natural History Museum, which... Well, tell me, what, what does that do? And why does it do it? Um, why do we do it? The arts science interest group was sort of convened by... As, as a response to the fact that the museum didn't really have a forum or an avenue to get people to get artists and scientists together to potentially come up with uh, projects and collaborations despite the fact we've had a long history of working really productively with with artists mm-hmm. um but the building itself is a work of art I absolutely think. yeah yeah it is um so we sort of saw a gap uh, and it's really is it's largely thanks to prompting from my uh from a friend Gemma anderson who's who's an artist who did some of her work, PhD work here, mm-hmm. so um, and together with a colleague Pete Olson, so we got together, convened this group, and we thought, let's see what happens. Essentially, when we get artists and scientists in the same room, but also to document what's gone on in the past. That was another. There was no sort of centralized. Still isn't actually. We, we, we've got to work on that. There still isn't. <laughs> still isn't a real you know record of what we've done over the years. So what what's what's going on at the moment? Or has everything uh, taken a bit of a backseat because of, of, of the dreaded COVID? Uh, COVID definitely um, hit ASIG. Uh, Art Science Interest Group took a has been hibernating. It's it's being it's coming back to life again in June. Mm-hmm. Also, family commitments at the same time. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. Um, really, the really nice development is the museum is uh, commissioning some contemporary um, art installations in one of our galleries, the Jerwood Gallery. Mm-hmm. So the there fir- was a moon thing. Luke, somebody's German. In the yeah, that sounds about right. I hope. Was that as a result of your? No, that came in. <laughs> no, totally. okay. Um, have I ever Shut had up, an Dave. impact? No, <laughs> uh, no. That was that came. I think that was actually pitched directly to the museum as. Okay. Would you be as a ready package? Yeah, yeah. Arena. And that, it did go down very well. It was nice. Uh, it's very good. 
So the contemporary art, you know, we've got, we're kicking off, I think from November, we've got Daisy Ginsburg. It's going to be exhibiting in the Gerwood Gallery. This, uh-huh. this amazing piece about the extinction of the Northern White Rhino. Again, that was, we'd seen this work or part of the work already. And a few of us lobbied to have it at the museum because it seemed very relevant to what we're doing. So that's great. She's going to be coming in. How so in terms of conservation as well as? The conservation message and the the whole idea of what you have representing what was once a, a living species. And so Daisy's look, I feel like I'll do an awful, I won't do her work any justice by trying to interpret it myself, but her work is looking at different representations of something that was once an amazing creature that roamed around and now is reduced to sort of images and DNA sequences and the odd specimen sure it's, it's quite a powerful work i think is there a risk of wasps going extinct uh very much so very i much. mean obviously sort of megafauna is more at risk one would argue but yeah it always saddens me we don't know much about wasp extinctions um we've got some good examples of species in britain where we think they've definitely gone now because they're at the edge sometimes they're at the edge of their range they're attacking wasps the hosts which are quite localized and they're prone to extinction you get local population of a host goes extinct the parastoid will go extinct as well sure. yeah so it's one of the things unless we actually start gathering data we won't know and so we're trying to get more data out of our collections and out of people you know recording and sure out there so through the act of pinning collecting and putting more wasps and naphthalene and wax kind of cylinders yeah <laughs> no, through doing that we have a better chance of knowing what we've got how many numbers we've got and therefore it needs to be done to conserve them Otherwise, we could get an infestation of something else that they're keeping nice under control for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, uh, you can't get away from the fact that it's one of those groups where you, you do need to be preserving actual specimens that tell you something about what's out there. You know, we're collecting a tiny few little spe- individuals from populations of unknown size sure. uh, and many fewer than you hit in your car sort of driving around. When uh, you pin things, when you create your records do you feel like an artist do you feel like damien hurst putting half a shark in in a tank do you feel like polly morgan mm-hmm. putting a snake in a, on a in, a in a bottle with a rat on a <laughs> on a shoe etc um is there an artistic element to what you do the short answer probably no i don't feel like <laughs> I feel, i'm sure many artists would also say the same yeah I, I can feel there's an aesthetic value in what i'm doing if i do it nicely it's a beautiful mm-hmm. specimen it's beautifully set but i'm not interpreting it in any particular way I don't think I'm creating a this it's always I always feel and again it's not it's not my strong point but when people produce incredible images just as scientific illustrations or and I've known individuals who put these forward as art as mm-hmm. artworks and I suppose my I feel it isn't an artwork it's a represent it's an illustration and I think there's a I think there's a difference but who knows? Uh, what about the creator, the whole sort of creation myth? I mean, I'm not particularly religious, but there's the whole argument of things are so beautiful that there has to have been some kind of divine hand in it. Even if Darwin says that however beautiful a wasp may or may not be, the act of parasitism would destroy the fact that they were created by anyone who cared about anything nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, things are so beautiful. I, quite a lot of them are, but then I just think, yeah, why, why the guinea worm? Uh, What's the guinea worm? Guinea worms, this, this horrible parasitic worm, in, which I think has pretty much been eradicated in Africa now. But you know, it basically burrows into the into your flesh, uh, flesh of humans, um, and then comes out when they 
when people go into the water, it then basically forms an exit hole in your leg and comes out. It can lead to infection and stuff. It's just not very nice. Have you ever been captured by the guinea worms? No, I've done very well with my parasites. <laughs> but we, we obviously, we're, we're programmed. We're not programmed. We, we, we're conditioned in some way to see all this stuff as beautiful. Uh, I wonder what other, you know, what a shrew thinks. He thinks, oh my God, look at these awful leaves just keep falling down and whacking me on the head. Yeah. <laughs> so more about your own particular sort of field research and stuff. Where where have you gone and taken? I, I read that you're taking particular focus at the moment on Africa and Central American wasp species. Does that mean you've got to go to Africa and Central America? Usually no, uh, sadly. Um, what I've have done, um, so I think in some ways it's more aspirational at the moment, given I should update that as well. Um, <laughs> Never trust anything you read online. No, no. Uh, Africa because there's a massive massive hole in our knowledge of, of ichneumonid wasps in particular very few species described from anywhere in the Afrotropics compared to, you know, compared to the actual species richness and I've got a mm. colleague down in Cape Town who's doing a lot to try and rectify that Simon um, so you know I've gone down there but essentially it's more trying to support PhD projects. projects rather than yeah and trying to make the collections accessible here and describe new species is that because you're now at the head of your own department here like have you done the field days leading up to now or have you always sort of been more of a have you been down in the cellars of people's archives <laughs> more than out with a net and a pith helmet i think so yeah i think so and i, th I think it's more uh, i don't feel i've done with the field work i felt i never quite got enough of a chance to be honest sure. uh, but you can't get away from the fact there was a there was a realization actually i've done some nice field work i spent a few weeks in chile collecting which was amazing but at the end of that trip i did really realize that i've just We've created a, some spot samples, essentially. I've, we've come in, did a little bit of collecting, but really I haven't made much of an impact on what we know. I don't know, there's a pretty big book here that yeah. is in front of me. But that's... It's the second geekiest book I now have in my library <laughs> after one on Woodlice. Oh, I want the Woodlice book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but ultimately, you know, that particular trip was good, but if I really wanted to know about the wasps of Chile, I should go down there for a year, two mm. years. But it's people who are already there probably going to contribute a lot more with me helping hopefully but also the collections that already exist are quite amazing and we haven't made enough use of those sure. so I end up working a lot with stuff that's already here and now I'm also working on a lot of British fauna for various reasons can you share yeah yeah uh basically because the we've got this project to sort of build up a, a genomic uh, reference library as it were it's a different type of collecting so we're going out trying to find very, very fresh specimens. So essentially, we're looking for insects and identifying them alive and then freezing them at like minus 80 or lower because they're, they're going to get sequenced. Their entire genome is being sequenced. This right. is the Darwin's Life Project? Darwin Tree of Life. Tree of Life, that's yeah. it. Yeah, which is really fun. But it's, so yeah, it's quite mind-boggling at times. So they're using you to go out and collect these samples and then they deep freeze them? Yep. Yeah. Um, How does that work? Is like Demolition Man, where they sort of... <laughs> uh, is it just big, thick gloves? Um, <laughs> is it, do, they, do they drop them in, a, in an, an agent, or is it just a cold atmosphere? Like, what do they do? How do they do this? So what we do is, and there's two methods. Um, so the specimens are basically, you often end up having to knock them out with CO2 or something, so mm -hmm. you can actually look at them in enough detail to know what they are. But then, make sure they're a new one that's worth getting the genome on. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, and then we sort of 
there's two ways. You can either use liquid nitrogen, which is the cooler way, uh, <laughs> literally in both senses of the word, uh, or dry ice, which is just, just about cold enough. Now, essentially, in dry ice, you just stick the tube with, the, with your insect in, in the dry ice, in a polystyrene box. It will keep for a little bit, keep for a few days. Liquid nitrogen, we, we charge these dry shippers, basically like a big vacuum flask, mm -hmm. and they get charged to minus 170, or up to minus 180 degrees centigrade. And they, they will keep their cool for a week or so. Right. Um, and then they come back to the museum, and we have the world's most boring collection, which is a sense, set loads of tubes, loads of little tubes of barcodes in, in, tra in racks. With frozen wasps and frozen yeah. insects. How many species are in the Tree of Life project so far? We've collected about 2,000 species so far. And we're not just talking insects? Or? No, no. Quite a lot of those are insects, um, but it's everything. Uh, so, you know, we've been lucky enough to get a few so birds that have um, just recently uh, died. For example, um, we've managed to get samples quickly from them, you know, from uh, wildlife rescue vets, sure. that sort of thing. Uh, we've managed to get a fresh roadkill pine martin for example uh, but generally it's it's insects and marine invertebrates uh, i've got a colleague out now who's joining it so one of my team we run a sampling team at the Natural History museum uh -huh. he's on a boat out in the atlantic going off to the porcupine bank uh, doing deep sea sort of abyssal uh, sampling as part of a uk uh, marine waters survey There's amazing squid and things like that that they're finding and so they bring them up, freeze them, take a genomic sample, and then add it to the database. Yeah. What happens to the squid afterwards? Um, if it's probably not said. Yeah. No, well, squid are quite big, so most of the specimen will, will go into to... the collections. Sure. Um, little insects, the entire thing is gone. Yeah. So then you have to just hope, hope you've got a good photo. Amazing. Yeah. Sorry, going back to what? Mm, yeah. What? Yeah, that just pointed needlessly. It's a yes, wasp. no. It's so a wasp that nobody can see. Yeah, um, no, no. Take me. Take, what am I looking at? I, I, it looks like I'm looking at a wasp wasp nest. A wasp nest. Yes. Uh, the work of five days. Looks like a paper yeah. nest about the size of a. Looks like a box that could hold a football in it. Yes, and it's got a sort of structure which essentially is grey paper wasp nest material because mm -hmm. it is just the work of work of wasps in a box. And this is somebody who's created this back in 1862. Oh, so this isn't made by actual wasps. This is a person making something like how wasps well, would make. Well, no, it's the actual wasps, and he's manipulated it. Okay. He's put wires inside this box so that they will build around it, because these are workers that's taken off a nest, oh. and they just build. They don't know how to start again, as it were. Sure. So they just build, so you can guide their efforts. And he's created this weird thing. It looks a bit like a theatre set, doesn't it? It does. It looks amazing. It looks like something out of Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That, that, that's this takes me on to something else that I read about was a guy called Lubbock who tamed yeah. a pet wasp. Yeah, yeah. Like so, you've got this. Who who was this guy in eighteen whenever it was who got wasps to build himself a miniature theatrical set? Do we know his name? Uh, Mr. Stone, and I think he was the Reverend Stone. And what is it with vicars and doing yeah. strange things? Whether it's Gilbert White or there's a whole host of very bored parsons. That's it. It must have been great job back then. Um, <laughs> if you wanted to do something else I don't you know I don't think being a Church of England vicar back in the 1800s was exactly you know it wasn't high religion was it it was essentially <laughs> pottering about I, I, <laughs> my dad's a Church of England vicar I'm loving the idea of listening <laughs> to this now and then he'd probably go yes he's quite right <laughs> I hope I mean thank you know I'm so thankful that there are all these 
these vicars who had time on their hands. Um, so tell me, tell me about Lubbock as Lubbock, well. So as all of these people who want to tame wasps. Yeah, as it happens, I have his wasp here. But this is Lubbock's wasp. Yeah, yeah. It's um, almost like I knew that was happening. I didn't yeah, know that was. Happening. You didn't know. Um, I just happened to remember. Oh, yeah, Lubbock. He's great. So, to David's benefit, there's a little wasp. There is a little wasp there, which is uh, a very ordinary European paper wasp. Uh, it's a species called Polistes biglumis. It's one of several very similar paper wasps. A uh, beautiful little little thing. They create very small nests. But yeah, Sir John Lubbock, he, he collected this on his holidays, uh, I think, in mm. somewhere in the... Oh, I should know things like that. Somewhere in the... Somewhere lovely. Somewhere lovely in the foothills of some mountains in Europe. And he sort of tamed this, or at least kept the wasp. I don't think he tamed it as such. But he brought it home with him on the train to Britain. Uh, <laughs> train and then boat, presumably. Some people go for a t-shirt, a postcard, like, I don't know, yeah. some local spices, but yeah. he brought a wasp back. He brought it back and he exhibited it at this um, uh, science uh, fair or something like that. And it got a lot of attention. And it was even... I mean, to he... me, it looks just like any old wasp. Not Sorry, don't mean to be rude. <laughs> but, like, it does look like a fairly standard what people would think of when they say a wasp looks like yeah. a bit like a yellow jacket kind of thing yep i think his any party trick or the, the wasp's any party trick was that it would drink sugar from sugar water from his hand i can make wasps drink sugar water <laughs> from my hand i swear i've done that i like yeah. why was that so impressive people still were really bored back then yeah maybe yeah maybe um but he did write very movingly about its death this little oh there's an obituary death. in something notable yeah i think it was nature i can't remember wow. So there's, yeah, I've, I've even got this. There's a pinned next to the wasp is a little description of how it died because he, he pinned it very nicely and presented it to the museum. Uh-huh. And just because Lubbock was such an amazing, just such an amazing classic Victorian sort of polymath. Sure. I presume he collected other things other than just his one pet wasp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of work on ants and bees okay. and discovered a tiny wasp which swims in the water to find little beetle eggs. Um, worked on crustaceans when he was a teenager he was a oh, wow. neighbor of darwin's and so he taught him uh, then lubbock became uh well he became a rather unsuccessful banker and then went into politics and became and there was became a lord avebury and he introduced the bank holiday act and introduced the protection of ancient monuments act which to protect stonehenge uh-huh. uh, very influential guy he sounds quite incredible Yes. There was me poo-pooing him for bringing back one solitary wasp from his holidays. <laughs> uh, he wrote a pamphlet on the virtues of sitting around doing nothing and just thinking, which I don't think he ever did. I think he's, he was always doing something. I think we need to get polymaths back into our world. I fear that we don't have them anymore. We're all forced to specialise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, here I am sitting next to someone who specialises in something that I can't even pronounce. <laughs> but what I think is beautiful about what you do is that you do do the arts crossover interest group as well, because that's the point and I think Lubbock in his pinning and everything you can't I don't think you can look at an array of that many wasps all pinned to a board and not think that there's been time and effort and intent put into it which is normally all you need for for art to exist and it's also pretty inflammatory potentially if you if you find it repulsive and that is also yeah. what art tries to do it tries to stimulate some kind of response in its in, in the viewer yeah. I guess it's just intention is the one thing you've got to question but yeah as a polymath that he sounds like, it sounds like he was always trying to elicit responses from people. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have yeah. been so extroverted. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, you mentioned Damien Hirst earlier. I think he maybe he is a very good example of somebody who essentially takes 
a process, a scientific process of preparing a specimen and then interprets and then presents this as yeah, in a way that is in a, yeah, there's I know people who've said how awful it is that all these specimens have died to create a work of art. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's to, yeah, that's what he's playing with, isn't it? And what do you think? I tend to <laughs> I don't know. I don't I like I like his his earlier provocations. Mm-hmm. I, I don't particularly keen in his recent work uh, you wouldn't be alone in saying <laughs> because it's it is it's, it's playing with the idea of mortality of something and what does it actually mean and he's almost poking fun it was at us and at the creature sometimes as well is it mean i don't know uh, the as the actual specimen as all these butterflies that died for some of his work is it is it any less meaningful that many many people have seen those works and, and it's got them thinking about something and in a way, the many, many butterflies here are hugely useful for science. But clearly, they were all killed to go there. And the other side of that is nobody gets to see it, or very few people. We are trying to change that. Sure. So I don't know. Yeah, that is the one. That is the, the the strange thing about the collections here is that they are, unless you know what you're coming to see and you request permission to come and see them, and the Lord High Chancellor of the museum allows you to come and look at them. Yeah, they may as well not exist. Schrodinger's wasp collection. <laughs> yeah, we are trying to change that. I mean, we're trying to get all these things online in some way, but clearly it's, it's a big challenge when you've got yeah, 21 million insects. Okay, there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. First question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Wow, what a good question. Um, anywhere <laughs> in the world right now, I would think it'd, it'd have to be somewhere in the tropical forests. Ideally, in in Central America, just because it's been quite a long time, uh-huh. and I think those memories are starting to fade. All the bird sounds and the and the insect sounds. I would like to hear them again. The insect sounds of of rainforests is something that has always amazed me. More noisy than anything else you could possibly imagine. It's so alive with life in a way. Yeah, they're amazing cicadas. How are they so noisy? Yeah, no idea. Are there any particular wasps that you'd be looking to see out there in this? Yeah, I would love to find, um, you know, uh, this genus, I'd love to find these things called Umanella, these ichneumonid wasps, which are metallic, sort of purpley blue, and they're, they're several centimetres long, and they're very rarely seen. I'd love to see one of those going about its business on a dead you know, dead trunk or something. <laughs> Do they sting? No, they wouldn't be able to. They've got very long ovipositors. They're probably drilling into the wood to find beetle larvae. So they drill through wood to find larvae too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're incredible. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what's the biggest wasp? Biggest, most massive wasp is this um, tarantula hunting wasp called Pepsis heros, which is, God, what is that? It's that sort of size. So Four inches? Five inches? That. Yeah, five inches. I think they get up to five inches long. Um, and I presume they hunt tarantulas. Yep. Uh, but hunt them as the larvae or inject it into a live tarantula no they they, hunt them to eat they hunt them to feed their young so essentially they feed what it's it's sort of a cross between a parasitoid predatory lifestyle they'll find a tarantula paralyze it um and then lay an egg on it and the the young wasp i mean the the tarantula is permanently paralyzed and it's either in its own nest or the wasp will dig its own hole and then put the spider into the hole yeah they cover it up is that right yeah and it's still alive yep and then the babies hatch out of it and eat it whilst it's still alive. Yeah, eat it. Um, 
so obviously they they go for the non essential tissues first and then then eat the whole thing when people say tarantula they think that that's probably one of the apex um invertebrates obviously not no 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 wasps are up there and i'm not sure of anything that would eat a, a pepsis wasp they're horribly they've got really powerful sting they're massive i don't think anything would touch them have you eaten wasps they're supposed no. to be quite good in protein <laughs> yeah you know i never have i'm not dying to eat them either <laughs> okay uh, you know, swallowed a few by accident when you're sort of sucking them up with a with a pooter. But <laughs> no, uh, the few insects I have eaten, I've thought they're not actually that tasty, but they're all right with seasoning. Yeah. <laughs> um, second question: If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? What would it be? I think it would have to be uh, some of those massive dragonflies. You know, from back in the uh, whenever they were. Were they even going... It must be early Cretaceous. You are literally the second person of this series, and I've only done four interviews, five interviews now, who said that. Oh, really? And I keep telling... I'll tell you what I told her, which was that dragonflies are more lethal in terms of the numbers of things they kill than any other creature on the planet. They're more dangerous if you're the wrong size than a killer whale. Like, yeah. So if you could bring these things back to life... I think you'd have to be really careful walking your dog. Yeah. <laughs> Would there be domesticated canines in a world where those things existed again? Yeah, well... Or we're in some kind of time paradox. Yeah, I think, I think there's a bit too many dogs at the moment running around, so... <laughs> why, 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 the, why the old dragonflies in particular? Uh, I think just purely because they're so big, you can sort of... They're still an insect, though, so you'd really be able to see what's going on at a scale that's more... more your scale. You know, I, think, I just think it'd be like having... Okay, I could just make a big... Like, a big gigantic model of a dragonfly good night but to see these <laughs> things flying around would be hey you'd make it be making a work of art there yeah, there yeah. you go that's exactly yeah. what your project should be doing yeah. are you worried about your eyesight looking at all these little things all the time yes my eyesight is deteriorating it's, it's really uh, annoying uh, like worryingly fast or yeah just over the last like two years it's suddenly going downhill it's just age i think but there was i read a book um by peter von leben who suggested that and I don't know the science behind this, but you could move, if you moved your life back and forth between a world where you're looking at things close up, whether it be wasps through a magnifying glass, to then spending time outside in forests and getting your eyes to shift back and yeah. forth. But it's through the sort of specialism of focusing on only one sort of depth perspective that our eyes start to sort of lose the ability to look at more things. I don't know if that's true, but it yeah. sounds good. It does sound good. And it's an excuse to get out more. Isn't it? And there are wasps yeah. outside too. Yeah. You should just get someone to come along and tell you what they are whilst you're off looking into the middle <laughs> distance. That's it. It's always a tension when I'm out. It's like close-up insects, faraway birds. <laughs> One of the things I, I, I asked you and then went back on was you caught your own wasp, your own species of wasp in your yeah. own garden. Yeah, that's where I used to live uh, a few years ago. So I was really lucky to have lived for a few years in a village in Hertfordshire. Um, and it was just... It was a rubbish little flat, but it could just run a light trap from my front porch. Mm -hmm. So I used to run the cable through the cat flap, and it was, it was really good because we were next to some lovely woodlands. Uh, and yeah, one of the wasps that quite frequently came to light, one of the ichneumons, was a mysterious species that I couldn't name. And yeah, eventually worked out it was undescribed. Um, and I've seen various other specimens now, but it's clearly, you know, it's, it's in southern England. It's not everywhere. Sure. It's in a few places. And I was lucky enough to get a hole. Just to find it in my garden. Has anybody else found it in other locations further afield yet, or is it really just that localized? 
I'm not aware of any specimens from anywhere else in Europe. Okay. Um, it must be there. What did you call it? Oh, I haven't even published the name yet. It's very sad. Uh, I keep, I've written the description. I need to do some pictures. Uh, but I'm going to call it Nutelia Williamsy. After? After Peter Williams, who was somebody who got me uh, who into bird ringing and then moth, one of the one of the guys who encouraged me to moth trap as well. And he died, but his his sons would be hopefully quite appreciative. Well, my final question was going to be, who's your natural history hero? Would it be him? Uh, or him and somebody else? Well, let's have Pete. And, you know, I, I, could, I should say David Attenborough, but I know that he's everybody's hero, I think, of cer- certainly of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. I, I had his books from before I could properly read them. I think amazingly influential. Have uh, you met him? Very briefly, I... He uh, was basically helping him with the, the shoot, uh, with the film shoot down here. And it involved for supplying some bees, and uh, he fell asleep. Uh, <laughs> so it's was such scintillating company. He'd been up since the very early. Uh, yeah, it's a bit sad that. So <laughs> um, David, so David, come and see Lubbock's what Yeah. Asleep. <laughs> I'll just have to go around to his house now and show Lubbock's what. <laughs> But who was another hero? Yeah, there was, but there were other more slightly more obscure heroes, um, and I think somebody like yeah, some some of the old naturalists who like there's a guy Perkins who used to curate the collection here. The sort of monomaniacs, I sort of admire them. You know, he was amazingly good at identifying human wasps and building up our collection, and to interpret all these old names, because a lot of species were described from Sweden. Mm-hmm. He would go. I think a few summers he would go up to Sweden and just collect tons and tons of wasps so that he could try and match his specimens to the original the original types and then build up the collection here and just this incredibly industrious strategy. Was he being paid by the museum to have these trips or was it sort of I don't know, more actually. of a life's work kind of self-supported thing? That's a good question. I'll have to find out. Yeah. yeah, he was certainly obsessed with it. And then he retired and I don't think he did anything else on wasps ever again. Oh, well. Are you obsessed with wasps? I don't think I am. I don't know if that's a sad... I mean, really, I think, uh, you know, it's my... It's what I wish I had had more time working on at the moment. Uh-huh. And I really, really love working on wasps. Um, I don't think I'm obsessed with them. My wife might say something totally different. <laughs> um, uh, maybe I just don't have time to be obsessed with them. It sounds like there are so many that you'd sort of have to be a little bit insane to be obsessed with them because it would eat up every single moment of your spare time. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's the, that's the key. That is it. If, if I think to have some kind of healthy life as well, maybe not best to tile de- dial down the obsession a bit. Okay, one final question to end on. What is your favourite wasp? <laughs> My favourite wasp is, uh, well, I always about, I was about to launch confidently into my favourite wasp. And I thought, oh, there's a lot of the contenders as well. Uh, I really love just for its showiness, um, that genus I mentioned from Costa Rica or Central America earlier, mm-hmm. uh, Umanella, just because I co-described one of these species and it's enormous and it's shiny and it's like the most beautiful thing you can imagine. Um, and it's nobody knew it was lurking out there until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So that would be one of my favorites. But then actually there's more interesting things biologically. How so? So something like... Um, your hyperparas stories that we talked about before, Mesochorus, mm-hmm. I think, wow, they're like the epit- they're just the ultimate parasitoids. They're going for other hosts that live inside a host. And, you know, that sort of, biologically, they're 
they've got to be the weirdest, most wonderful things, I think. It's like, why have they made their lives so difficult? <laughs> why do they do that? They didn't choose to do it. That's just evolution. It's yeah. just the way it went. <laughs> Needs must and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gavin, thank you very much. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. It's been really fun. So there you have it, parasitoid wasps, Damien Hurst, and frozen pine martin DNA. What more do you need from a podcast? A huge thank you to Gavin for sparing the time to talk to me. As always, you will find some further reflections about my time with Gavin over on treesacrowd.fm. This week I talk about the value of categorising and monitoring our planet's wildlife and how that impacts upon the chances of our own survival. And for those of you supporting the podcast on Patreon for as little as £3 a month, you'll also find a bonus episode where Gavin talks to me further about wasps in art, how and why wasps perceive colour, and why ultimately, why wasp scientists are far better than bee scientists. Thank you as ever for listening, and I'll be back again next month on the first Tuesday of September. Bye-bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.